This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today's discussion, I'm joined by Lauren Jacobs, Executive Director of Power Switch Action, to discuss the state of labor organizing in the U.S. today. We talk about the challenging tensions between our contemporary, robust, rejuvenated labor movement and the structural constraints imposed by the oppressive power systems that govern us. Lauren explains the invaluable role that labor plays in resisting authoritarianism and concludes with some important truths to help ground organizers in this vital struggle for worker power. As the executive director of Power Switch Action, Lauren Jacobs' mission is to ensure that this amazing network of organizations and staff achieves its purpose, making multiracial feminist democracy a reality. Lauren is a committed organizer and has dedicated her life to supporting working people as they gain power to shape their own working and living conditions. She began organizing factories with Unite in the South and later joined SEIU. During her 17 years at SCIU, she served in a number of roles, from organizer to local union vice president. Right before starting at Power Switch, Lauren was with the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United as the organization's national organizing director. She joined Power Switch Action, then the Partnership for Working Families, in 2016. Well, Lauren, we're thrilled, so thrilled that you're going to be joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for asking me onto the podcast. I'm very excited that you all are doing this. So as we know, this is a really dynamic time in U.S. labor history with recent unionizing efforts at major corporations, including Starbucks and Amazon, the historic contract negotiations at UPS to the high visibility strikes of the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA. This is a big question and one we can stick with for a while. But how would you characterize this period of labor organizing in the U.S., especially in the recent decades of significant decline of unionization attempts and union membership? Is this a period of immense promise or a blip in a long history of steadily waning labor power? Um, wow. So we're going to kick it off with the really hard question of the day. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's an important one. I think one thing that's really important is also just to get very specific about the things we're seeing. We're seeing organizing, which is workers who are not um, recognized by their employer as being part of a collective bargaining organization. And we have seen militancy from workers who do have that kind of legal recognition and are fighting for bigger pieces of the pie that they helped create. 
um, other places of employment. Um, so I think we are seeing, you know, overall, this is an amazing moment and we should all, um, you know, we should not give in to pessimism, not, not the thing to do. Um, we should be open and really excited about what is, what we're seeing. And we also have to be sober and assessing. So we have seen, um, you know, just even this week's final resolution of the UAW strike and just the amazing bravery and savvy of leadership and membership and how the strike was, you know, um, how the strategy of the strike, as well as the constant messaging that was really speaking to all workers and all working people about the economy, the economy that our bosses want and the economy that would actually benefit all of us. And really speaking about that as the heart of the strike. Um, and um, and to see that, um, you know, I think one of the areas at Wall Street during the crash that they precipitated, the UAW was one of the biggest targets, if we'll remember, um, you know, the folks that perpetrated sort of the crashing of people's pensions, the loss of uh, millions of homes in the United States, then went and said, well, these workers have to give up their wages and benefits to save the economy. Um, and so to see sort of um, the union roar back and talk about like, we have made you wealthy and that has been us and we deserve our piece of that pie um, was really incredible. And to see that result in the victory is amazing. So I don't want to spend too much time on that end. So that's like, you know, the sweets and the amazing things that are happening and really speaking on a moment. And I think, you know, what we're seeing from Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, and from a, num a number of sectors, right, um, where we have non-union workers organizing, fighting, um, I think we can say it is amazing. There has been incredible movement. And we are also seeing the limits of our current system of labor relations really act as sort of the block here. Um, you know, we are all, we can all see Starbucks breaking the law. The NLRB has ruled that they have done that, right? And yet and still, um, they continue to do this, right? And continue to, um, you know, fire workers, close stores that have unionized. Um, although they just reported, I think just yesterday, their earnings reports was that they have done exceptionally well. And part of that secret was the opening of hundreds of stores. So it's very interesting in the contrast of many stores closing, they've opened many more. So, um, you know, it's sort of right before our eyes. Um, and I think we can see the same thing with, you know, Amazon and what has befallen sort of workers have organized to different warehouses. Sort of the company depends on its incredibly horrific safety standards act as an automatic correction to by having such high, unbelievable turnover in the warehouses portion. And then has sort of counted on um, terminations and other actions to sort of tamper down the organizing that's happened by white collar workers in Seattle and other places, challenging the company on many of its policies related to climate, and also supporting um, the organizing of lower income workers in the company's supply chain. So, um, what does this all mean? It means. Working people are ready and ready for a change and ready to fight. And the legal tools uh, are not there. And so what is what I think this sort of raises a challenge for us. This was once true in this country as well. 
pre the establishment of the National Labor Relations Act, which I would be criminal and not saying excluded many sectors of the economy, specifically those occupied by Black people and very specifically Black women at the time, right? And um, Indigenous folks, right? Um, and Latino folks, right? So like agriculture wasn't a mistake. Domestic work, it wasn't an accident um, in terms of who was in those jobs about why they were excluded. Um, and, but to go back, that there was a period of time that there was outright just, you know, literal and figurative warfare, right? Um, around the right to organize and the right to better conditions at work. And the and National Labor Relations Act was a response to that. And I do think this is a question that sits for all laborists, right? Um, both those that are working and members of trade unions and those of us who are certainly, um, I would not even say fellow travelers, beloved travelers, right? In this movement of thinking about what are the conditions and organizing that are necessary to cause another reckoning with new rules that are made for what the economy looks like presently. Thank you. That was an excellent comprehensive overview. And I think you also set us up to talk a lot about those structures that are really the barrier to um, harnessing this momentum and continuing to build labor power in, in a way that that isn't at every turn countered by structures of power. Staying with structures of power more broadly, in the years since Trump's 2016 election, this period of U.S. history can also be described as one of increasing authoritarianism, both through the rightward pull of the Democratic and Republican parties to the active attacks on our weakening electoral system, the capture of formerly more centrist governing institutions like the Supreme Court, and the growing acceptability of anti-democratic rhetoric in the national discourse. What role does labor play in resisting authoritarianism, shoring up democracy, and how do you see that interaction playing out right now? Yeah, um, this is an excellent question. It's one that my organization's thought about and has incorporated into our analysis of how we're approaching this. Um, I think the act of workers organizing in the shop is anti-authoritarian by definition because the workplace in the United States is a mini-authoritarian state. You enter work and you lose your right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all of the sort of rights that we sort of see as pillars of the democracy of the U.S. democratic system and the Bill of Rights, you do not have in a, in a workplace. You can be fired um, for speaking out um, on working conditions. You can be fired for, you know, you know, well, de facto, I mean, technically it's illegal, but like we know a number of workers are fired for organizing in the place, in the workplace. And certainly, um, you know, there are so many barriers to forming an organization that um, has standing in the workplace. So, um, and I think that that has Really, we have to think about the psychological impact of the fact that most people spend at least eight hours, but in this current economy, we have folks spending upwards of 16 hours a day at work. And so we're spending most of our time in a place where an individual or a set of individuals govern every aspect of life, how long we get to go to the bathroom, how long we can eat whether we can take a moment to stop and catch our breath while we're working, 
right? Whether or not we are able to stop if like our body is hurting in some way from repetitive motion, all these sort of details. Um, and, and also who we're able to be around, right? Workers that are organizing and talk about any situation where I was in this section of the, of the workplace and because I was very close to everybody, they've moved me where I don't know anybody, right? To get me away from everyone. That happens, right, as well. Or they put me on a different shift. So um, I think, you know, the act of organizing and especially in workplaces that are multiracial themselves is an act of resistance to authoritarianism. I frankly feel like in um, building unions, building unions where workers are making decisions together and deciding what are the sort of goals of their organizing, how that organizing will unfold, the tactics we will use is a building block of democracy. It's putting people in relationship together where they have to sort of listen to each other. They have to make a decision sometimes about like, my issue may not rise to the top. Actually, this is rising more to the top. Maybe um, I make more. I'm in a unit that makes more. And these folks have never gotten a raise. So they're the priority. It's all those things that are about the practice of being in, in it together and being a collective together that are building blocks of what you need for society to function as well. Um, so I think the organizing is important in that regards. I think the other thing is the anti-democratic forces where they have focused has been in the electoral realm, but their backers are in the corporate realm. So we have to see organizing and not only fighting for different working conditions, but also being able to have power to challenge how um, the institutions we work for are acting in broader society and being a bulwark against that is also a necessary strategy and avenue of struggle that the progressives have to take seriously and, um, and have to see as an important tactic in our larger struggle against author authoritarianism. That's a great point that in, that corporate power as a backer of authoritarianism can be challenged by its own workers. And that's, you know, I think a, a through line of organizing that is often um, underrepresented because there is so much important emphasis on just working conditions, living conditions, equity, um, the end to precarity. But that sort of democratic um, th that democratic process of challenging undemocratic, you know, allocation of resources and power, plus the democratic practice of learning how to organize and being in community where we don't have a civil society, a robust civil society to be in community and practice being in community sort of shows that like the dualism that uh, labor organizing presents. Mentioning precarity, I always like to talk about precarity on the pod. Um, we know that precarity inherent in our capitalist global economy and skyrocketing wealth inequality presents workers and their families with few options for security, wellness, and flourishing. Can you talk about the allure of reactionary anti-state narratives presented by the far right in providing explanations for the precarity of workers and how labor organizing can play a role in presenting counter-narratives and real options for the reduction of worker suffering? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest, um, you know, sort of false narratives that are offered to people is that it's those people that, you know, um, it's Black people, it's immigrants, it's it's Jewish people, right? Like any number of 
excuses, right? Saying that that is why those people are taking things and this is why, or those people aren't working and that is why, or those people want to work for less than you and that is why. Um, and what labor organizing um, presents is a, a opportunity to really engage in who is really responsible for the economy in which we, in which we exist and to move folks from a zero sum. You know, this is typical when people are organizing, it's one of the biggest anti-union tactics, which is to pit everybody against each other and get a sense of like, well, if these people get more, you're going to get less. And um, the sort of overcoming of that and building a union really is about sort of accepting of shared destiny. And I think, um, you know, if we're going to break down sort of the decades of investment that, frankly, the center right to the far right has made in sort of narratives that lay blame at any number of mostly ethnic groups, but in some cases not, right, on uh, the harms of the economy, um, you know, what's caused the economy to not produce for people. Um, if we're going to undo that, we have, this is one of the main vehicles and avenues we have for taking that on and really sort of addressing and laying blame where it, where it deserves, which is um, we have people um, with more money than they know how to spend in a lifetime or their generations now that have spent in a lifetime while we have untold numbers of people without homes living on the street or an untold number of children that are going to bed hungry every evening. Thank you. Thank you for naming sort of the political education aspect, too, of organizing. We've named corporations as one of our key um, antagonists in this story. But in labor organizing, there's a very clear opponent standing between workers and emancipation, corporations and their stakeholders, those who you just mentioned having more resources than they know how to use in a lifetime, in many lifetimes. For our listeners interested in the biggest barriers to unionization, how do corporations block the creation of worker power? How do they deploy U.S. political structures to do so? And how can workers withstand corporate pressure and influence? Again, another big question, but some top notes, I think, would um, reduce the anxiety around uh, uh, organizing one's own workplace. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's a number of vehicles, right? So I think these one to point out that we all sort of live and breathe is sort of the narratives that happen in our press and happen in um, major communications almost to the, to the fact that they're just like ways we talk about things. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is anytime you hear anybody use the term union boss, I'm like, what the, what the heck is that? That person is actually elected by members, right? Um, you know, and last I checked, the uh, small group of rich people elect the CEO, right? And to me, that's an act of trying to third party or make the union some other be, be, being in vehicle that is not its membership, is not regular working class folks like um, others that are trying to organize. The other um, very real um, thing that we've touched on in this conversation is just what it's like to be, um, to, to stand up and take on the task of organizing in a workplace, what that environment changes to. Um, um, bosses that, you know, invest, especially in hiring anti-union um, law firms or consultants to help them. One of the biggest tactics is to make the workplace just an incredible pressure cooker, right? That there is just constant um, meetings, liars, 
a lot more sort of surveillance and oversight over people, um, a lot more like one-on-ones and to make it so that the place feels so um, miserable to go to that what it does is it creates a sense for people of like, well, before we did this, this didn't exist, right? So before did we didn't have this kind of acrimony in the workplace, so people will vote no and pick the the devil they know over the devil they don't, right? Um, in that case, and then we've talked about the extremes of firing people, humiliation of public humiliation of folks, right? Um, is one tactic that also goes on through the berating of union activists in the workplace and isolation of them in other ways, right? Sort of. Um, retaliatory behaviors that are short, stop short of firing the put them on display of like, this is what you get if you stand up with the union. It's, 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 it is literally a psychological warfare um, and economic warfare that is launched against folks when they're organizing. So that's one thing. And then there's just a reliance on the weaknesses in the National Labor Relations Act, which was created at a very specific historical period, right, for an economy um, corporations and economy that looked a certain way. And we've had some shifts in terms of um, the size of corporations, right? How workplaces are structured, whether people even have a workplace that they go to, all sorts of things. Um, and we don't have a structure that accounts for that. And frankly, to be honest, we don't have real penalties. I mean, I just, you know, like, let's, you know, literally firing somebody from work because they dared say that they deserved to be paid more, right? Or they deserved to have health care. They deserve to be safe and free from injury. Like firing somebody is, in fact, um, putting that person's life at risk because you can't pay for food. You can't pay rent. Um, you can't take care of your kids, right? If you lose your job. And we have the only penalty that exists for that is maybe if you go through a thousand hoops of convincing, you know, of like airtight, there was no other reason under the sun while you were terminated, right? Um, except for you, labor organizing. Um, and it has to be very clear that they knew, right? Um, bright as day. Um, if you somehow make it to that and then three or four appeals, that the company will inevitably do with the National Labor Relations Board, all they are penalized is what you would have made during the period that you were fired, minus any other earnings that you got. So the incentive, just, you know, to think about this, this is a drop in a bucket for most of these corporations, right? There's no real penalties. Frankly, um, I look forward to today that we're having serious conversations. Um, I tend try not to be a person that endorses incarceration, but I don't know. Sometimes I feel this way about rich people that take this type of economic violence out on working people that perhaps they should see the cages that they built for for us. So I do think, you know, there's real conversation about what is the real level of penalty we're going to assess for people that violate what we purport in this country to have as core values of freedom of speech, freedom to association, and freedom of assembly. It It is hard to be anti-carceral when there's just no other, I mean, existing form of punishment, especially for people who play with other people's lives. 
Um, I feel that tension acutely. Um, what in terms of you know I, what I hear you say is you know in terms of the increased hostile work environment upon sort of learning of a union drive that workers should rem- remember that it's temporary, that it's a tactic, and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. What kinds of coalition spaces, um, communications across union organizing um, drives, attempts, union organizers who you know move from workspace to workspace that can communicate that kind of temporality? What are sort of the the methods and the mechanisms for for sh- showing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel? I think there's been a number of discussions about this. I mean, one of the core roles of the organizer is not to do the work, right? You're building what's helping people build an organization. Um, So the bonding and commitment to be in this together that the workers sort of make at the start of a drive is critical, right? Um, And that support system that they sort of start to develop amongst themselves is critical. But I also think is, you know, they're not the only ones with a stake in how companies behave, people that are in communities where um, a particular employer may be, um, you know, certainly this is true in goods movement, lots of pollution, lot from trucks and diesel fumes and, um, other, you know, other hazards, right? Um, a community is also impacted, um, especially smaller towns, by if, you know, one employer is the largest or the only game in town, that can have, you know, extreme effects. So it is also thinking about these questions about how is this not just the folks inside the walls or on the payroll of um, Corporation X that are involved in the struggle, but how is this a broader community struggle that is really sort of taking on um, these questions around um, fairness, uh, not only for the workers, but also for the community surrounding um, these places of employment um, as important tactics in terms of boying and helping people sort of overcome. Um, I think also just from my own history doing this work, um, you know, just in and have been, you know, had the grace to be uh, work with a couple um, units that have gone on strike for a variety of different periods. And, you know, the thing I reflect from that time is people may make the decision the day that the strike starts, like that act of like, I'm not going in. I'm actually going to stay outside and, you know, and be on the line. Um, it's an important moment and people may make that decision based on their own issues that they're facing, but the staying on the line and coming out every day, what I have heard every single time is people point to different of their coworkers and we'll talk about the stories of what they are struggling with and why they are committed because, you know, this person needs this and this person's facing this and this person's got this incredible struggle that makes it really hard to be here every day, but they're here. So how could I not come? And so I do think that this is also um, that sense of this being bigger than just you and bigger even than just the group um, takes on a life of its own and um, helps people through the struggle. That's a great framework. I think that that's um, would be an excellent starting point for you know small workplaces thinking about uh, unionizing. Sort of what are the stakes, what are the sacrifices, uh, and leaning in solidarity in order to overcome both um, 
Thinking about labor organizing in the context of electoral politics, I want to start with a discussion on uh, labor and federal politics and then pivot into um, what, local what local political organizing, how it relates to local uh, worker organizing. So Joe Biden and his administration currently have a very mixed record on support for labor as market examples, notably blocking a rail strike in late 2022, and then more recently, um, high profile joining United Auto Workers on the picket line in September of 23. What is the relationship between worker organizing and the current presidential administration? How susceptible is the labor movement writ large to party turnover at the federal level? And what role will workers play in the upcoming federal and state election cycle? Yeah, um, I that's a very fair characterization of where we are. I mean, that's, you know, the thing that, um, I, you know, I will say because of other things going on in the world, I am very obviously, um, I'm holding a lot of criticism um, for the president at this moment. So I don't want to not, you know, really state that. And so on this particular issue, um, you described sort of the, both the shortcomings and the things that have been good. And the shocking thing is for, I would say, for many generations of folks that have been in the labor movement, this is the best that we've ever, we have seen. Um, so, um, and it's just, I think it's sort of taking some stock of that. Um, what that means is, was the first president to go to a, a labor, you know, to a, to a strike line that had never happened before? Um, as well as, um, you know, I think the repeated statements on Amazon and the need for Amazon to be organized as well. And the statement of encouraging workers that it's their right to organize when, um, uh, Staten Island shop was organizing, right, in the course of that. So all that's the good, right? Um, and I think actually rather than talking about the individual and their sort of, you know, how good are they? Because I think we can get lost in that in a heartbeat. I think it's important to pull back and think about structures and power. Despite all of this, despite the sort of leaning in, and I think kind of leaning into a, um, a post-World War II sort of industrial framework of like, we'll sort of go back to like unions building the middle class. And I am always a little bit shy about that language, I should say. I, bristle a little bit because I'm like, well, if there's a middle class, then there's a lower class. And I think actually labor's goal is to eradicate that whole idea. So so I just, I'm always like wanting to tell them to say, isn't our whole thing is that we want to eliminate poverty, period. Um, so um, I think though, that's where he's sort of sad. But even in the sense of that, with incredible decisions coming out of the National Labor Relations Board, and incredible statements by the board about how it views things. We know in a second of an administrative turnover, this will, things will roll back again. So that's one. And two, that um, the structures of our legislative government sort of prevent um, the passage at this current moment of anything approaching new labor, a new sort of labor law structure um, that would enable and facilitate um, the organizing by workers and that right to choose, right, um, to be in an organization. So I don't, I think what does that say to me is less about like Joe Biden up or down. It's more about what's the level of power. Again, I go back to this, then it goes back to 
What is the level of power that has to be generated? What is the level, and just to be honest, the level of crisis that has to be generated that forces a reckoning by those in power to change the rules um, to end such crisis? And that is something that I think is sitting in all of us. Um, where power switch has leaned in itself has been on supporting how it's done. We've been dug in, both our affiliates and national staff have been dug in on supporting organizing by um, op-based workers, specifically those in sort of um, uh, taxi-type services um, and delivery, as well as workers at Amazon um, warehouses as well. And um, we're not a labor union. We're not engaged in organizing a union, right? But we are engaged in saying, even with abs the absence of that, um, folks have a right to organize to improve their conditions, right? And have a right to um, hold their elected leaders for creating structures in both states and municipalities that enable the, their ability to improve their conditions at work. So that's, you know, that's one way that we see that, um, you know, sort of non-labor groups can uh, be supportive of efforts of workers to improve conditions and not be so um, stuck by the limits of the National Labor Relations Act. So, which would, in, you know, right now presently excludes app-based workers, right? They're termed as um, independent contractors, but there is still um, regulation and other systems that can be in place to improve the conditions that people are forced into when working for um, corporations like Uber or Lyft. That's a great narrative around um, calling for accountability of electeds without having to actually be in a an active moment of union organizing yourself, right? That that it's the responsibility of our electeds to uphold our rights, and one of those rights is to organize. Um, as a communications professional, I really appreciate sort of a, a really tight, uh, effective story like that. Uh, pivoting our focus to local races, and given what we know about the essential role that municipal and county electoral races play in blocking anti-democratic organizing that directly impacts communities, what role do workers play in local political organizing, and how do municipal and county govern governing structures impact the possibility of worker power formation? Yeah, um, I think, well, workers play incredible roles because we're majority of, no matter where you go, we're the majority. Um, in all of these cities, like the wealthy and sort of stock option gaining folks are fewer, right? Um, uh, are few um, by definition, right? Um, and so, um, you know, our voices obviously carry it away. The question is whether the voice is organized with a clear point of view and a clear um, direction in which is headed. And so I think this sort of brings us back to some, one of your earlier questions about sort of the false narratives and false things that get thrown out to people. I think this is one of those questions about where we see, and this is across parties because, you know, the party affiliation is not what matters, but we will see, and especially in cities, debates between crime and, you know, law and order versus um, a state that is seeing itself, you know, sort of, uh, a dis I, we term it sort of a patriarchal disciplining state version versus a nurturing and curing state that is about um, improving conditions for all and creating um, a society in which all can thrive. 
Um, and so, um, you know, again, I sort of go back to labor organizing important and supporting unions and the right to organize critical in that, because I think that is one of the, it's not by accident that um, union members um, participate at higher le levels and elections, because um, I think sort of it's a muscle. You get good at practicing collective action, and so you start to do it in other arenas of life, right? Um, and exercising power. Um, I also think, you know, there's just, there is the question about how are we, and one of our affiliates is experimenting with this idea, they have built a structure called neighborhood unions. So this is not a union at work, but it's the idea of like, we are collectively in this and collectively an organization that's come together for the for the benefit of the greater good and are acting in common interests. Um, there, you know, this is a C3 body, so it's not necessarily engaged in candidate selection, but one could see that acting in that way for the betterment of their city and neighborhoods with, with folks that are already in office and advocating for things, it's another way of flexing those kinds of muscles. Um, so I do, I do, and I also think that local elections are a vehicle in which working class candidates are, are, are able to enter and win. Um, so this is, you know, one of the ways we can sort of see that ability to move from the see the electoral arena, not as just the arena of like sort of the wealthy and um, the powerful to enter, but can see pathways for workers to enter that realm as well. That's a great point that, you know, you really see worker power at the elected level in, especially in smaller municipalities uh, where there is just less money and, and um, campaigns are run at a neighborhood level. Um, your answer also made me think of, you know, we've been talking about organizing workplaces, but debtors unions, ten tenant unions, like the ways in which the structure of a union um, has become a useful tool for organizing communities of people who have shared interests um, and a shared uh, need to to acquire power and protection in number. And so it's, you know, really compelling um, response. Um, thank you so much, Lauren. This was a really fabulous conversation. One that I think was very um, oriented to both sort of the hopefulness of the moment, but also the serious structures that remain in place. Uh, and I really appreciate that you took the time to talk with us today and all the work that you do at PowerSwitch. Thank you. Um, and thank you for hosting this conversation and the others that you're hosting. Um, it was really fun to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wildman. Harini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials, and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time.